Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. Each and every week we make a boring sport interesting, one podcast at a time. The 2021 track and field season has come to an end with some suspiciously fast sprint times. Will those continue in 2022? The fall marathon season is almost upon us. Berlin is this weekend. What can we expect from the great Kenanisa Bekele? The great Mary Bekele has retired. Does she belong in the Mount Rushmore of women's marathoning? And a new shoe study reveals that we've still got a super shoe problem in the marathon. All of that and more on this week's podcast. Let's run I come co-founder Robert Johnson and welcoming you guys and gals to the show. I'm joined as always by Genetic, a significantly faster twin brother, Weldon Johnson, as well as a staff writer, Jonathan Dalton. Good to be here, Amber. Good to be here. Yeah, good morning, Robert. Also, at the end of this podcast, we have an interview with the co-founder. We like co-founders here at Let's Run.com of a French running shoe company called Relance. They're making a running shoe in France, in factories in France. They sent me a pair. It's the most stylish running shoe. You can back the project on Kickstarter, 120 euros. Florent Bang is the name of the co-founder. Interesting guy. Former professional basketball player. Well, second division France, John. I'm not sure if that counts, but very cool guy. He's got an engineering background. His partner has got a design background, and they're trying to make a running shoe company and not making the shoes in an Asian sweatshop. Well, Weldon, given On's recent billion-dollar valuation, have you invested some money into this so that when they hit it big, you can you know retire and you know take us all on a victory lap around the world? Well, I mentioned on to him and he's not, you know, we disclose stuff when somebody pays something. We just interviewed this guy because I thought it was a cool story, but I should have said, Hey, we'll take like 0.0001% of the company got net written in. If you go for billions, John, I think that, I think that works out pretty good guys. I'm not sure you can tell, but I'm a little under the weather. It means I got to stay hydrated Unfortunately, I got my drink LMNT element. It's electrolytes without the junk. Let's run users are taking advantage of this offer. Free sample pack, six different flavors, sent your way, $5 shipping. Go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run. No dodgy ingredients, no sugar. It's all natural. It tastes great. Comes in these little tear to use packets. No gunk, no mess. You got to try it out. Tons of Let's Run users are trying this. I love it. I will stay hydrated this week. I will be ready for next week's podcast. Let's Run users aren't the only ones trying it out. I don't think I've told Weldon this. The patriarch of the Johnson family, Papa Johnson, was in town this weekend. I told him, did you know your son is a celebrity endorser of a drink product? My dad's very fed. He works out. He said, no, I've got to try it out. Then he called me. He was you know, 75. He said, well, which flavor should I try? I said, Dad, get the sample pack, try them all out. So should be on the way to Texas soon, I think. Now, in terms of flavors, orange salt. Orange salt is the way to go. I apologize for on this podcast saying lemon habanero. That's one of the party flavors was the best. Mm-mm. Orange salt. I've been craving it this week. Okay, guys, I want to talk about the 
end of the track season before we get to the road action this week. I've got a lot of sprint things I want to talk about here. First of all, kudos to everybody that went to Nairobi for the last IDLBF Continental Tour event of the year. We always say, those of you that keep racing, those of you help us make the sport better, thank you. By the way, we did a live show last night with Stewie McSwain. This guy has made track and field interesting. Um, he didn't catch it live. We're going to be releasing it as a podcast because the people that keep racing really help the sport. So thanks everyone that went to Nairobi. The big result there was the men's 100 meters where you had Trayvon Burmel, who has not been able to break 9-9 since really the U.S. trial. It's been running 9-9 high consistently. He wins in a new personal best of 9.76, followed closely by an African record, Ferdinand Omanyala of Kenya, 9.77. These results certainly turned some heads. They're both now in the top 10 all time at number six and tied for number eight, or actually tied for number six and number eight all time. And it kind of bothers me when they put altitude times on the all time list. If you factor in the altitude, the altitude's worth 0.05 and the wind is worth 0.05, 1.2 meter per second wind. So, still, even if they were running 986 and 987, that's pretty fast. I mean, Bromel hadn't shown that type of form in quite some time. He's about a tenth faster than he's been running. Congrats to these guys. But there was a tweet out there put out by Ian Hodge. It's Ian H- at Ian Hodge 7. The world's most improved athlete this year. What about Ferdinand Omanyale of Kenya? He started the year with a 10.32, ended up with a 976 John, what should we make of this? He's 25 years of age and has in the past violated anti-doping rules. Yeah, so he served a 14-month suspension in 2017 after testing positive for a substance called beta-methasone, which I'll admit I don't really know that much about. Obviously, he made a big breakthrough. And honestly, when I saw it, he so he ran 986 back in August, right after the Olympics in this meet in Austria. And I was like, all right, this... And he made the Olympic semifinals. I mean, he ran 10 flat in Tokyo, so it's not like he hadn't done anything. But right, going 10 flat to 986 in one meet, and this is random, this one-off meet, I'm kind of like, okay, is something up with the clock? I thought we might have a Alex Wilson situation. But then he goes to, you know, at home soil in Kenya and runs 977. Like you said, obviously with the altitude, the wind, it helps. But that's still a 987 in still condition. So, yeah, he's really good. Do we, I mean... Yeah, there are always going to be questions about people who make this sort of progression. You had a good thing in the week that was, Robert. I mean, Marcel Jacobs, the Olympic champion, also improved a lot from 10.03 to 9.80 this year. So, yeah, people, especially, you know, if you've tested positive and you've served a band before, like Omanyala has, people are going to have questions. But I don't know. Do, do, I, do I have any inside information about this guy's improvement? No. But I think you've got to put that in context, context of what he's done. I'll say two things. One, I mean, obviously, given the sports history, it's suspicious as hell. But we can't. You have to admit that. But two, on his the one positive, one thing he has going for him is if somebody could sort of come out of nowhere at age twenty-five and be world class, it would be someone obviously. I think more likely to be in like Kenya. They're not known for sprinting prowess. Than in like the U.S. I mean, somebody you think somebody that fast in the U.S. would have been spotted in high school or something. So I'll give him a tiny bit of the doubt. But the question I have for you guys is: He's not the only one to improve a lot. Marcel Jacobs. Anyone remember that guy? 
think he, what did he do? Oh, wait, he won the Olympic title for Italy. Um, he's improved by, he was started the year 10.03, ended up at 9.80. Do you guys think either one of these men will be close to this form in 2022? I have a bold prediction I would like to make, but if, I'll let you guys make your predictions first if you want. I think the Kenyan guy for sure. I don't know what Marcel Jacobs is going to be motivated for whatever reason. I feel like the hungry lion gets the food more than the fat lion. So Marcel Jacobs, I'll wait. I think I feel more confident about Jacobs running well. I mean, he's, I guess he just turned 26, but he's the Olympic champion. Like, how often does it happen the Olympic 100-meter champion just fades into obscurity? Not since I've been following the sport in the men's 100 meters. So I I do expect he'll be pretty good again next year. Do I think he'll win? I think the odds are probably against him with Bromel. Uh, you know, sorry, not with Bromel, but with Christian Coleman coming back. And then there's a lot of good Americans. And the Americans are running on home soil. But yeah, I think Marcel Jacobs will be good next year. I got a hot take. And it's probably the opposite of where Robert's going. But could Ferdinand Omanyala be the world champion next year? He improved so much this year. Now, you may attribute to something else, Robert, but in the history of sprinting, I've never seen somebody improve this much. So in one year, if you're just totally raw and you got this good, wouldn't you expect some improvement in year two? I see what you're saying, but with this as I always remind people, when you have an amazing breakout year, to think that you're going to surpass that the next year is unlikely to happen because everything went well. You hit all the workouts. You recover perfectly from it. You're unlikely to replicate nailing these perfect workouts time and again. Now, I don't know much all about sprint training, but I, I see what you're saying there. But first of all, you guys are just – this is so obvious. Marcel Jacobs will not be – neither one of these guys I don't think will break 9-9 again. Definitely not Jacobs. And – I agree with Weldon. I think the one most likely to do it is Ferdinand here, Mr. Ferdinand, because I know that's not his last name, but he got more incentive. This guy's not made a lot of money. And let's be honest, if you're cycled up, who's going to risk cycling up again in 2022 to make some money, to get the Diamond League money, the parents' fees, the endorsement deals? It's going to be this guy. Jacobs has probably already made hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in endorsement fees. If he was doing something illegal, People are talking about his trainer. If he's smart, he would just go off into the sunset and never be heard from again. Where Lance Armstrong made the mistake was, I mean, I always assumed Lance Armstrong was dirty, but then when he came back from retirement, I remember talking to the guys at Cornell. I was coaching there at the time saying, well, maybe he actually is clean. Why would he come back? He's not going to come back and do drugs again, but he did. So that was a big mistake there. But John says, when does the Olympic champion fade from obscurity? That's what I want to bring up next. This is going to be a new segment here. Okay, can I can I have some thoughts here on Marcel Jacobs? First of all, this is the second week in a row where Robert has asked a, an athlete to just retire because he doesn't think it's going to get any better for them. This is a guy who just won the Olympics and Robert says you should just retire. I guess you're operating under the assumption that he must be doping. And I don't necessarily, I don't share that opinion. I mean, obviously it's possible, but I'd like to try to give people the benefit of the doubt. So I don't know, he... Yeah, he had some ties to a sketchy trainer. He said he cut those ties. I don't know. He, but like, I don't think just like, oh, immediately he must be doping. Therefore, he must retire at the end of the season to preserve his legacy. I disagree with that. I also just think 
this is amazing that we've now shown there's nothing anyone in the sport can do to sort of prove themselves to Robert. You can win the biggest prize we have in track and field, the Olympic 100-meter title, and Robert will still not give you credit and still not think you're any good and just think you're a flash in the pan. So I guess that's that's what this proves. Well, conversely, we can say that nothing you can do as an athlete will prove to you that you are a doper. You can be Shelby Houlihan, test positive, and John will say that your clean is, is, is snow. So th- th- we make weird conclusions all the time as journalists, fans, you know, et cetera. I don't know. I, Robert, do you want to bet? I think that Marcel Jake. Wait. All right. How about this? Do you think he'll be in the final at the World Championships next year, Robert? Do you think he'll make the final? No. All right, I'll bet you ten dollars that he makes the final. Okay. Now, if, if I'm going to point out something positive in his direction, I'm good at pointing out both sides. People say I'm just trying to pick on Trent. I like to think about both sides of an argument. You know, we have seen people this year, like we like, oh, he's a long jumper and he became one of the world's fastest sprinters. Why wouldn't he be doing that all along if he was so good at sprinting? But we saw that this year with Fred Curley. He was a 400. He moved down to the hundred. He was great at it. So there's been a number of people that have been sort of in the wrong event. Ryan Hall was often in the wrong event, et cetera. But talking about Olympic champions, just riding away into the sunset. The most famous person to ever do that was someone by the name of Florence Griffin Joyner. She basically came out of nowhere in 1988, set the world on fire, set some world records. And then by April of 1989 was retired from the sport and we've debated in the past whether her 10.49 world record should be the world record i think we all agree that it should not be the world record just simply because of the win readings if you look at statistical analysis of that race everybody in the heat went way faster than they did the rest of the year it has to be have been significantly wind aided that should not be the world record and elaine thompson harris should be the world record holder but there also been some speculation about drugs and I didn't know that there was actually Weldon has mentioned this fact a lot um, on let's run, but like when you become a fan of something like at 15, once you become a fan, you pretty much know everything from then on, but something five, 10 years before that, you don't really know much about it. And this is proven that because 1988, well, I guess we were actually 15 then my brother and I, but we weren't really following the sport closely. I didn't realize there were actual credible drug allegations associated with the Florence Griffin joiner camp. And this is my new segment. What I learned on the message board this week, because the message board gets some negative criticism and some of that, you know, moderating a message board is hard go, go, or, or the internet is hard. Ask Mark Zuckerberg about that. But I think there's a lot of great stuff on there. And I want to, I want to start highlighting the, the good of the message board. And there was a fascinating thread on there this week that taught me a lot about the sports history. And I think it was really insightful. And some people, again, th- th- this is actually a great thread because it shows you the positive and negatives of the message board all at once. So the thread was entitled, hasn't Bobby Kersey been through, been thought to drug his athletes in the past? If so, why are we giving Sid, meaning Sidney McLaughlin, a pass? And this thread w- was fascinating. It, it, people started talking about Bobby Kersey's past and, and whatnot. And there were some links to some articles that I d- didn't know existed. And one of them was a article from the UPI from 1989 and a Canadian sprinter, Angela Bailey testified under oath, I assume to the Canadian government, uh, government inquiry that basically said that Bobby Kersey was a drug coach. 
She said, I had heard rumors that this, that he was a drug coach, but she still agreed to go down and train with him. But she said, the only reason I'm going to go down to the United States is if you can make me that promise that you can coach me without drugs. But if you can't, then I won't be there. And he said, just believe in me, just trust me. But she said that basically she couldn't handle the training. It was way too intense. And the implication was that people who were on drugs could handle Kersey's training, but she could not because she was not on drugs. So this is pretty damning for, you know, Coach Kersey. She even went farther and said, he didn't know how to coach me because I was drug free and I didn't improve. So I just thought this was interesting. I didn't realize that, you know, Bobby Kersey, who is Sydney Dolphins coach now, was also Florence Griffin Joyner's coach. So I didn't realize that there were sort of these specific type of allegations under oath at the time. And then there was another thing. This is actually the same thing, April of 1989. Okay, Robert, this still isn't any allegation. This is something that she heard she was a drug coach, went down there and couldn't train and never saw any drugs. So you need more than that, man. Okay, well, I'll give you a little bit more of information. I'm not saying that he is or isn't a drug coach. I'm just providing you with facts. 1989 Washington Post April article. This is even more interesting, just really fascinating. There was a guy by the name of some obscure senator. Let's see here. Senator Joseph Biden D. Delaware. Have you guys ever heard of him? He was leading a committee. Joseph R. Biden's our president. So is this some other Joseph Biden? No, it's the same man. Same man, John. Oh, okay. So Joe Joe Biden was um he had a Senate hearing on steroids and he wanted to make it illegal to send steroids in, in the mail. And this hearing was was pretty, pretty fascinating. Evelyn Ashford, the Olympic gold medalist, testified, as did her former coach, Pat Conley. And they said that they thought that at least 40% of the US women's track and field team in Seoul probably took steroids. And Ashford said under oath that at least two American women gold medalists she knew were on drugs, were on steroids. Now in 1988, Seoul, John, is that 88? That's, that's yeah, 88 Seoul. So there were only three U.S. women that won individual golds in Seoul. Florence Griffin Joyner, Jackie Joyner Kersey, who obviously both of them have ties to Bob Kersey. And then the third was high jumper Louise Ritter. Now, there were some people on the four by one, Ashford, Alice Brown, Sh- Sheila Eccles, and Danette Young. So there were seven people total, but only three individual gold medals. So they don't get specific. They didn't name names. I'm just saying that it's an interesting thing. Now, on the message board, I actually defended Bobby Kersey because I said, look, to me, I don't really have a problem with someone knowing about drugs in the 80s, even necessarily doping people in the 80s. It was a different time. It was very hard. Look at the women's world records that are still standing from that era. Like it's kind of like you're facing a moral dilemma that the cyclists face, you know, in the '90s and the 2000s. Like, do you want to be competitive or not? And I think if you're actually a smart coach, you would have been around that. So I'm not saying Sydney. Do I think Sydney McLaughlin's on drugs in the year 2021? Absolutely not. Do I think that Bobby Kersey should be disqualified from coaching in the year 2021? No. But do does this what I learned on the message board and these articles, and we'll, and we'll link to this thread on the message board, uh, in the show notes so you can read it itself. Does it make me think that, that Florence Griffin Joyner was on drugs? Absolutely. Do I know that 100%? Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really change my mind about Flojo, though. I've always 
had huge suspicions about her because of her ma- massive improvement at the age of 28, ridiculous times. And then she retires just as soon as they say they're beefing up drug testing and do out of competition testing. So her whole career, she has the most specific, suspicious career in history, I would say. Well, I mean, I guess every East, you know, Eastern Bloc athlete from the 80s as well who's breaking these world records. But among American athletes who haven't actually been popped for doping, I'd say she has the most suspicious career of any of them. But for some reason, you think that Marcel Jacobs is just going to keep improving next year. I didn't say he was going to keep improving, but he just ran 9.80 and he's in the prime of his career. Why wouldn't he be good again next year? You think he's just going to get fat? He's a professional athlete. I think you guys just think, oh, someone wins the Olympics immediately. They're just not going to be a factor next year. Like, well, he's a pro. What else is he going to do? He's just going to retire at 26? I don't think retire, so. If he's dirty, retire not to test positive or B, get off the drugs and just run mediocre times, pick up appearance fees for a year and move on forward. Okay, and there's more. So I was doing some research on this today and I found an article and I just added it to this to this thread and it's even more damning for Florence Giffen Joyner. This is an article from the Where, Desert. Robert, ne- why are we spending half an hour talking about Flojo's doping accusations from 30 years ago? I'm not really sure why we're doing this. Because it's really interesting to learn more about the sport. I didn't know about any of this stuff. I knew a lot about the allegations of doping and, and, and distance running or not. So Desert News, again, April 1989, a guy by the name of Lee Benson wrote about Griffin Joyner's retirement. And um, he basically said how she retired you know, with a straight face because it was too grueling to try to manage her endorsements and compete at the same time, as if other athletes don't do that. But this article says writes the following. She says, says, in Philadelphia, Carl Lewis has told a group of students at the University of Pennsylvania that he knew, quote, from very reliable sources that Flojo used male hormone steroids in 1988. I never heard that. According to this article, published article, Carl Lewis said that Flojo was on drugs. So there you have it. Interesting stuff. What I learned on the message board, let's, for my mainly a distance site, let's move on and go in that direction moving forward. Okay. Well, yeah, speaking of distance, I feel like the biggest distance news of the week just happened this morning. It's Mary Katani. One of the greatest marathoners of all time has announced her retirement at the age of 39. She's a four time New York city marathon champion, three time London marathon champion. She held the world record for the half marathon in 2011. She still has the fastest women's only marathon in history. 21701 at 2017 London. I mean, She's one of the most electrifying talents we've ever seen in the marathon. And she said that, you know, she's had some injuries the last couple of years. She hasn't raced since 2019. She was hoping she'd be able to come back. And at the end, she couldn't get her body healthy enough to sustain top level training. But it's not going to be the same with that. New York, she was a fixture. Every year in New York, you'd see Mary Katani, you'd see her kids in the media area. She'll be missed. She's a legend, John. I can't say that she sort of took over for Paula Radcliffe. But Paula Radcliffe was dominant when healthy. And then it took, for me, when Katani came around, I just felt like if she was on her best, ran smart, she'd win the marathon. Well, the funny thing is she didn't always run smart, right? Like sometimes she'd go out insanely fast. 2011 New York City was her second New York City marathon. She goes out in 67.56, Totally blows up over the second half, runs it in 75 minutes. 
But then she also did, she did similar things in London and actually worked out. Like in 2017 in London, she went through in 66.54. So reminder at the time, the world record then was 215.25 by Paula Radcliffe. So she's going out way, way faster than that. She did not have super shoes. She only, she did not have a male pacer. She had a female pacer with her, but even, you know, that pacer, she was sort of, pushing her to her limits, just going that fast. Her third mile in this race was 4.37. I mean, granted, it's downhill, but that's absolutely ridiculous for a woman. And I'm watching this race, and I was like, oh, my God, 66.54. Like, she's going to totally blow up. There's no way she can hold on to this. And, yeah, she slowed down, but she still ran her second half in 70 minutes, and she ran 2.17.01. It was one of the most phenomenal marathons I've ever seen. 2.17.01. Again, only people who have run faster are Bridget Cosguy and Radcliffe, and Cosguy had the super shoes. So that that's like my defining race memory of her. But also next year in New York, she closes in 66.58 over the second half. And that includes the Central Park Hills. It includes some bridges. I mean, like you said, Weldon, when she was at her best, no one could touch her. The 2000, was it 11 New York when she went out crazy fast? That's probably the race I might remember the most because... I just remember thinking, like, you don't do this in a marathon. I almost thought, like, you can't do this in a marathon. Like, nobody would even try it. But she did. And and that's one of the things I liked about her is she had all of this amazing talent. But she didn't always get it right. So it sort of reminded me she's human. Uh, Alan Webb isn't a perfect analogy, but you'd see flashes of brilliance and then flames sometimes she, she's, you know, 10 times a better runner than Webb, but sort of, we were reminded of her humanity at, at times, which I liked. You guys have been making some good points and she famously did not get it right in 2017 may not have been her fault. Remember she ran that race on her period and I guess although I did hear some people after the, fa- after the fact saying, well, why didn't she just get on birth control pills if she knew she was going to have her period during the Olympics? I mean, during the New York City Marathon. And Shailene Flanagan famously won that race and is now sort of an icon in American running circles because of that. I mean, Shailene was going to be pretty famous, but that New York the win just was massive for her long-term uh, publicity, which is fascinating to me because – you got Katani, who's closing races and you know half marathons in sixty six minutes in a full marathon. Shailene Flanagan's half marathon PB. Do you guys realize what it is? Sixty seven fifty one. So on their best days, these people are. I mean, Katani's in another stratosphere, and yet Flanagan was the two thousand seventeen New York City champion. Yeah, the the crazy thing about that race, Robert. I mean. Look, right, non-running fans, they just hear Shalane Flanagan. Remember, Shalane, Shalane, not Shalane. Shalane Flanagan, 2017 New York City Marathon champion. They just hear that. They're like, okay, she won the New York City Marathon. That's really impressive. But for running fans, it was such a big deal because Mary Katani was a god. She went into this race as the three-time defending champion. I remember talking to Shalane before the race. I was like, do you think you can beat her? And she was essentially saying, like, I don't, if she runs her best race, it's not really realistic. But... She kind of knew she needed to catch a break and she did catch a break and she took full advantage, Shalane did. But one of the reasons why that win was so iconic in running circles is because she took down this colossus, Mary Katani, who basically, you know, we never thought an American would be beating her in one of these races. 
John, you wrote a nice tribute to, to Mary Contini, but I, I wanted to add something to the end of it about like, where does she rank in terms of, you know, the all time greatest women's marathoners. And so we thought about it a little bit and it's pretty interesting when you're coming up with the list of the all time women's greatest marathoners in history, who is the goat, none of the women, at least in contention for the, that title in my mind, they all share one thing in common. None of them have won Olympic gold. So I put Katani on the Mount Rushmore, which would be my top four. And I think, John, you kind of agree with, with my logic on this, but I, I'm not going to, I can't put her at number one. I'm not sure. I think I'd have to put Paul, probably Paula Radcliffe at number one. So we've got Paula Radcliffe uh, sort of at the modern recent era since 2000 plus. You've got Paula Radcliffe, Catherine Indoraba, and Mary Katani. Those are the three greatest recently. Um, Bridget Coast guy's getting up there. Paula Radcliffe won eight marathon majors, including one that includes one world championship gold. She set two world records. She also had one third place showing in a major. Catherine Indoraba, <clears throat> who I helped pace to a world record, had eight world marathon majors, including two world cha- championship golds. She set one world record, but she also had eight second place showings in majors. And that includes two Olympic silvers and one world championship silver. So she never won a, a, an Olympic title, but she had two silvers, eight and six, and, and five other, you know, the majors, silvers. And then Katani, seven major wins, two second-place showings, two third-place showings, plus a fourth at the Olympics, and the women's only world record. And then if you're going for number four and five, I'm not necessarily putting these people in order. It's hard to put Greta Weitz. Like how, do, how do you compare her, John? She's got 12 world marathon majors. That includes one world championship gold. She set four world records and did win Olympic silver. I mean, I bet some people might even argue Greta should be number one. I just can't go that far. Well, yeah, it's, it really depends on how you value. Like it's very it's tough to evaluate these women who are running 30 or 40 years ago when the depth of women's running just wasn't there. There was basically no East Africans running at all, but they were taking the event forward by so much. I mean, when Greta Weitz comes on the scene in the late 70s, the marathon world record is 234. And, you know, by the time she leaves, it's getting, she gets down to 225 in London in 1983. And then Joan Benoit runs almost three f- minutes faster than that a day later, 1983 Boston. Joan Benoit, who does have an Olympic gold medal, by the way, runs 223, 43. You know, it's Boston, so it's not official, you know, world record eligible anymore. But, you know, do you give credit to them for just taking the marathon to such an entirely new level? And they are racing each other a few times. I mean, Joan Benoit beat Greta Weitz at the Olympics in 1984. Or do you say, okay, they were amazing for their era, but if they ran this era of super shoes, they might get stomped by someone like Perez Chepchirchir or Bridget Cosguy. It's just tough to weigh those two things. Me personally, I, I just can't compare them. Babe Ruth was a great baseball player. I honestly don't think he'd be that good of a baseball player today. Maybe that's wrong. He he, he was the best of his generation. So with the talent, the resources, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you train him, he actually probably would be the best. So it's just impossible to compare. You don't think Babe Ruth would be a great baseball player? Oh, my God. Well, okay, it depends, Rob. If you give him the resources, maybe. But if you just plunk Babe Ruth from the 1927 Yankees into Major League Baseball like today, I don't think he'd even make the majors. Oh, my God. Why? Because he's big? Because he like- was facing guys who threw like 70 miles an hour with no movement on their fastballs, Robert. The guys now, everything is moving like crazy and they're throwing 100 miles an hour. Like I think he'd just be totally out of his depth. 
Do we have any baseball historians that listen to the podcast? How fast did they throw back then? Yeah, maybe they threw in the 80s. I doubt they were touching 90, though. In ni- like 1927? I don't think so. I don't think you would take him along with his hand-eye coordination to be a hell of a hitter. You know, if the boy, major league hitters can hit 100 mile fastballs, that's not the problem. You know, they can catch up to any heat. Catching up to the speed, if you're a good hitter, is not a problem. Catching up to the movement is a little bit more difficult. I love how Robert's a baseball expert, but acts like hitting a 100 mile fastball is just the same as hitting an 80 mile fastball. Just totally not the case. Yeah, I mean, look at the guys, and this is why the minor leagues exist. No one goes straight for, like every other sport, you go straight from college to the pros. Baseball, you have to go for, through the minor leagues from high school and college because it does take a while to get used to hitting the pro pitches. Robert, will you admit that? Yeah, baseball is weird. It's really amazing. Like they cannot predict. You know, I mean, I think there's been some number one overall picks that have never made the majors. Like it's kind of like a crapshoot. So you know, you know, if you fail, you know. If you get one hit, one extra hit every 20 at bats, you go from being like a mediocre player, you know, hitting 250 versus hitting 300. So, to a good one. Okay. Speaking of marathons, full marathon season's upon us. It begins this weekend in earnest with the first world marathon major of the year in Berlin. And we've actually got an American in the field this year. Shalane Flanagan is going to be running over to, to running Berlin Marathon. She's trying to run six major six majors in seven weeks. So what what was it? Six majors, yeah, and in seven forty two days, which I found was interesting because she has this Instagram post and she's saying like I'm taking on this challenge. You know, it's all about you know she was injured when she retired and now she's got back to running for fun and fitness and she's enjoying it and she's ready for this big six marathons in seven weeks challenge i'm like this is great and the whole idea is she's running six majors in seven weeks the problem is tokyo marathon has been canceled this year so i'm just like is whoever's running her instagram account not aware of this or they just it was quite confusing to read that she's got this great big plan when one of the races that was ostensibly part of her plan no longer exists john she's doing the virtual the virtual tokyo so is she going to do chicago and Boston back-to-back? That's the big one, right? Get, running Chicago on s- Sunday morning and then getting on a plane and running Boston the next morning, that's going to be brutal. I mean, the rest of this is pretty genius. It keeps her relevant, keeps her out there. It's pretty easy for her to do, I think. Well, not pretty easy isn't the right word, but I'm really not that impressed with somebody running six marathons in seven weeks. You know what I'm saying. I agree. I can't believe John brought this up because I was a little bit torn about this. I'm like, this is obviously a PR stunt. It kind of bothers me that Nike's getting more PR for this than they, than a lot of pro runners who don't get any interviews. I've gotten, I got emailed from the editor in chief of self magazine saying, Hey, are you going to put this up? I said, look, we've got a message board thread. I don't know how I, I go. I love Sh- Shalane Taylor Dutch wrote the article. I, I like the, you know, her stuff as well, but I'm just like, I don't know. Like this is taking away attention that should be going. I guess uh, I would think to some actually elite American runners. Um, it also bothered me that the Self Magazine article had no mention of the doping positive of Shelby Houlihan. I felt like, okay, if you're going to give her publicity, you need to at least ask her a question about that. Maybe they did, or maybe there was. I don't know. There was nothing in there about it. 
So I know people think that we're going soft on the Bowerman Dry Club. But I would have asked that question, even if it was just a generic question of how's the team dealing after the huge feeling after the positive test. Yeah. I mean, she is one of Shelby's biggest, staunchest defenders. She's an assistant coach of the program. So fair question to ask. Yeah, I mean, she's not running these races for PRs or anything. She's just kind of doing them as a challenge. for. I, I think it's cool. She wants to do something to challenge herself. And okay, like, is it the hardest thing anyone's ever done? No, but I think it's still... I mean, 26 miles, I don't know how far she's going to be running, but doing it every weekend, doing Boston and Chicago back-to-back, I don't think it's quite as simple as you guys are making it seem. I'd be pretty worn. I think a pro runner would be pretty worn down from doing six marathons in seven weeks. She wants to challenge herself, and Nike wants her to stay relevant. Let's be honest about those two going together. Who cares? I do think it's cool. I remember thinking, like, wow, I'm surprised someone... I'm like, I was just impressed that she thought of it. Well done. Well done. Yeah, I like it. I don't think she's... She, is someone else knocking an interview because she's doing this? I don't know. I think any publicity for the sport is generally good publicity. But anyway, let's talk about Berlin because they are there are elite races in Berlin. And the biggest storyline here, overwhelming everything else, is the return of Kenanisa Bekele to the marathon. He has not run a race of any distance since March 2020. He has not run a marathon since September of 2019, which was his famous 201-41 in Berlin. He's now 39 years old. He's the headliner in the men's field. And he's going out there. I mean, look, I don't think anyone knows what to expect from this from this performance. Because I talked to his agent, Jos Hermans. He said, yes, he spent some time in the Netherlands trying to get healthy. He spent about five weeks uh, in Nijmegen, Nijmegen, which is the headquarters of Hermans' agency, you know, training, staying, trying to stay healthy. And then I think the last six weeks or so, he's been back in Ethiopia training for it. Uh, I think he, Herman's told me he had COVID over the summer, but that was a few months ago. So he's okay. And basically he said, look, he's health's good. Everything's good, but it's Candice Bekele. So we never know. He was trying to say, you know, he's got 20 years of training in his legs. So if this buildup wasn't perfect, he's still got this, you know, natural endurance. But and then I was like, look, the big thing people want to know here, this is what Bekele has been chasing ever since he moved to the marathon, world record. Is he going to go for it? What can we expect? And Hermes didn't make any big proclamations, but he just said, look, he's fit and ready to run fast. How fast? We have to see on Sunday. Personally, I'm just happy he's at, he's there. He's running the race. At the moment, he's disciplined and anxious to still show, show something in the next coming years, knowing he's getting older. So that, would mean, that to me was interesting. He thought he liked his attitude. He thinks he's not done. He's running this. Then he's running New York in November. Might be running a marathon or two next year. So clearly there's still some motivation with Bekele, but I don't think anyone knows exactly what we're going to see from him on Sunday in Berlin. How cool would it be if he wins two majors in the span of about, what, six weeks? That would be wild. Talk about a hell of a last hurrah. I think he's definitely going to go for the world record. I mean, he seems obsessed with the world record. Could he do it at 39? God, seems unlikely, but I'm super pumped for this. I think this is his last shot at the world record, to be honest. I mean, my take on that whole thing John just went through is like, okay, he's not going to get the world record. That's all I really want to see him do. I'm going to go if he runs 203 and wins. Do I really care? I think I'd be pumped then, and then I'd be really pumped for New York because I'll be in New York. But it sounds like he's not that super fit. But 
if we do remember correctly, two years ago in Berlin, 201.41 out of nowhere. I mean, that was crazy. I really wish he had just beaten the record. I mean, we love Kipchoge, right? But so much of, of what Kipchoge was doing, the sub two, all the stuff, the pacing, it, there seemed like an artificial element to it. I'm like, oh, he's so much better than everyone else. And if, if Akele had just clipped his record, I think people would see the sport a little bit differently right now. Instead, he came up two seconds short, and we act like Bekele is unsuccessful at the marathon. It's crazy, right? I mean, he ran 201.41. Yeah. Well, I remember that well because we were in Doha, and I woke you up to watch this. Or I think we had to stay up because we'd been writing the previous night. Then we're like, oh, is it worth watching Berlin? And we turned on, and we were like, oh, wait, he's through halfway. He was on world record pace. And then we watched the second half. It was crazy. But, the, yeah, it was interesting. So when when Kipchoge broke the world record in 2018, he smashed it. You know, he took it from 202.57 down to 201.39. I wrote this column the next week saying, all right, the era of world record chases is over in the marathon. No one's touching this record for a long time. And then one year later, Bekele almost broke it, almost made me look like a total idiot. And now at this point, I do think Kipchoge's record will stand for a while, probably a decade. But the, I mean, it was it was incredible. Even though he didn't get it, it was incredible. And that's the thing. Bekele does have a history of Berlin. He'll get counted out. 2016, people were sort of counting him out. He might have been on the downswing. Comes out, almost breaks the world record. He beats Wilson Kip saying, runs 203.03. And then three years later, same thing, 201.41, this big comeback in the second half. So I'm never going to totally count out the guy. But yeah, the older he gets, the harder. And again, he hasn't run a marathon in two years. He had to withdraw at the last minute from London last year because of injuries. But he's been battling injuries for years. It doesn't. I don't think he's going to break the world record. But with Bekele, there's always a chance. While you guys were talking, I was rereading the recap of that race. Remember, he got dropped between 30 and 35K. So one thing that made that world record possible was, or near world record, was, you know, Berhani, Berhani Legesse and Cesar LeMay were running so well. I mean, between, Legesse ran the 30s, between 30 and 35K in 14.09. That's 159 marathon pace. He had a 13-second lead over Bikile. Bikile kept going. And then actually a 40 K was two seconds ahead of Kipchoge. I, I wish they had some sort of, I mean, he must've known, right. That he was on world record pace. Like, was that clear? Do they have a projected pace on the car? Like they should have had a line on the damn car. Do you think he could have gotten two more seconds? Uh, that would have been a pacing aid though, Robert, if they have the, isn't the project, the laser lights on that. Isn't that illegal? I don't know. We probably didn't write a preview of that race because Doha was going on, but nobody was expecting that at the time, but if he has, he, he's going to need competition. I think that's the thing about the rest of this field, Robert is, I mean, like we said, the majors aren't going to be quite as strong every single one of them this year, because there's five of them now to recruit against each other. And if you look at the rest of the field, Guy Adola is the next guy by personal best at two or three Remember he almost beat Kipchoge in Berlin in 2017. Uh, hasn't done a ton since that, but he did run 204 in Valencia two years ago. And then no one else under 204. You got Marius Kipsaram at 204.11, Elliot Kiptanui at 205.21, and then no one else under 206. Oh, I guess we should mention Olika Adugna. He won Dubai last year, 
He's only 206, but if you win Dubai, you can usually run pretty fast. So, I mean, there's there's a guy, the guys here could run 203 or 204, but I, I don't know if we're going to see anything crazy, crazy fast because the very, very best guys look to be in other races this fall or at the Olympics. That made me do a little research. I wanted to look up in 2018 to see if Mr. Elliot Kipchoge was pushed to the line in Berlin when he did set the world record. The answer would be negative. Second place was over 206. So should be a good one. Um, women's race, John. Looks like we've got two women under 221. He won of Ethiopia, 219.35, who won Milan earlier this year. And Shura Demise, 220.59. Yeah, that's really it. This, this is not a women's field to really write home about, to be honest. Um, someone's going to win it. It's probably going to be, I would say, like you said, Gaborkadan is the favorite because she's, I believe she's the world leader this year with that 219 in Milan. But yeah, I don't know. Not a ton to preview here uh, on the women's side. Well, they do have four women under 224, which is how many more than Chicago? One or two? Well, Chicago's got Sarah Hall and Ruth Chepp and Gettich, so it's two, it's two women more than Chicago. That, to me, is more interesting, honestly. Chepp and Gettich and Sarah Hall, I at least know who they are and what they've done. These the, the women in the elite race in Berlin are all fairly anonymous. Well, that's because you're a xenophobe. Ruth Chepin, I know Ruth Chepin Gedich, what she's done. She's a big name internationally. All right. Speaking of marathons, we all know that the Super Shoes will have a big impact this weekend. And I'm pleased to report, folks, that we're going to keep talking about the Super Shoes for months and years to come. I think some of you are fearful that we had an even arms race. Everyone's got a Super Shoe now, and there's nothing to talk about. Well, you would be mistaken. A study has come out from Stephen F. Austin, some researchers down there. One of the guys involved, his name was Dustin Joubert, J-O-U-B-E-R-T. He's a Let's Run visitor, professor down there. He's done the study that basically we taught when we had Jeff Burns on, on the show. I'm like, this is the study we need to do. We got to get people in the lab, test all these super shoes, and see how they stack up. Well, they've done that down in Texas, and the results are pretty shocking. I'm going to actually talk to Dustin later today or maybe tomorrow, write up an article about this. I haven't had time to do it yet. I've been trying to reach him for the last week. But basically, the the results are not – they show that there's still a huge problem in the super shoes. And because, you know, a couple of the super shoes are really good, most a lot of them suck. And there's a significant advantage to depending on what brand you're wearing. Have you guys seen this? You can also follow it on at lab rat rundown on Instagram. You've got some great graphics that really put it easy for you. I'm going to embed this in the article that I write should be out in the next day or two. Have you guys seen this study? I did because you sent it to me and I felt like part of my job is to read it. And I, I don't know, should we reveal which, shoes were the best ones robert because i think people won't be surprised to know that the, the vapor flies and the alpha flies were up there but then after that there was another one from another brand i don't know should we get into that now yeah so there's a message board discussion called new research study we'll link to that in the show notes as well but anyways if you read the study or read my recap of it or whatever you'll find out that they tested eight different shoes 
Now, they couldn't test everything because the Adidas had just come out or they couldn't find them in the right size. They didn't test Puma. I know that. But they tested the, the, the two Nikes. The, they tested Asics, Saucony, New Balance, Brooks, Hoka Carbon X, and they had a control shoe, which was the Asics made of Speed Raiders, so an old flat. That's the same name that Ryan Hall ran, but it was a slightly different version than what he ran in. And basically... There was three shoes significantly better than all the other shoes. And that was the Nike Alpha Fly, the Nike Next Percent, and the Asics shoe. And there's really, if you look at the chart, you might see 3 3%, 2.7%, 2 and 2.5%. I've been told that statistically there's no gap between those three, even though the Nikes were the top two and Asics sort of, should be considered statistically the same. But basically you have a 3% improvement in running economy in the alpha flies. And the next tier down was the Saucony and the New Balance. And it's just one and a half and 1.4%. So there's a 1% gap minimum because the ASICs was two and a half percent. So you've got at least a one, a one to one and a half percent gap in running economy based on these shoes. Now, what does that mean for an elite marathon? Well, I just got off the phone this morning with Jeff Burns and he reminded me he confirmed what I thought was true was true. He's like, you generally get about a two thirds of that benefit. So two thirds times, you know, one to one and a half percent. And then you multiply that out by the marathon. You're looking at basically a minute in an elite marathon for men, a little bit more for the women because they're running a little bit slower. So, you know, anywhere from like 0.006% to 0.1% to 1% in the marathon. So, this is significant. And the study also revealed that a couple of the shoes are just complete trash. They're not doing anything. The Brooks and the Hoka Carbon X really, you know, as Jeff Burns said to me, he's like, why would anyone be paying $200 for those shoes? It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I know I'm sure what people, some people are going to say, but, 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 uh, Alephine Tulemak won the U S trials and a pair of Hoka's. Yes, she did. But she won despite the fact that she was wearing Hoka's. So, the science doesn't lie. Oh, and the reality was, do different people respond differently to different shoes? That wasn't what the study was designed to really look at. But the answer is yes. But for everybody, those top three shoes, the two Nikes and the Asics, those were the three best shoes. So, you know, and this is, to me, raises a real question of fairness. Like, the shoe companies aren't putting these studies out. I mean, why would Saucony, New Balance, Brooks, or Hoka want people to know that their shoe is complete trash. So they, they market, oh, I've got a new super shoe out. And they put out some Instagram thing. I mean, Saucony has flown Kyle Merber out today to Austria or somewhere. I saw on, on Twitter, he's in Austria broadcasting some 10K or something. People running in the Saucony super shoe. Well, guess what? It's, it's not a very good shoe. It's not, it's not as good as these other shoes. So, you know, but what's runners supposed to know? Are they supposed to test themselves in a lab or test these shoes? It's just very difficult. So, I would say, you know, if, if, if you're Stephanie Bruce, let's go back to the Olympic trials. Stephanie Bruce, you might have been an Olympian if you'd been wearing a different pair of shoes, unfortunately. Well, Robert, can we just, I do want to point out, like, this is one study I think, can, thank you for, for doing this study, the folks down at Stephen F. Austin. I think it's it's what you've been clamoring for. I think we need more stuff like this to be studied. But I think it's also worth noting, Melindy Elmore, I don't know if you remember this, Robert, the Canadian marathoner, when she switched to Saucony, 
last year, I believe, she did a study comparing the Saucony Super Shoes to the Vaporflies, and she found basically there was no difference. They were level playing field there. So that doesn't jive with what these the findings from this study are. So I do think it's, you know, I can't, it's not, I don't think there's a slam dunk. This is definitive proof, but I do think this is certainly strong evidence that there is still a difference between these shoes. And I think it would be interesting to know what the Adidas shoes factor in, because we've seen plenty of fast times in Adidas in both the marathon and the half marathon. My guess would be they're going to be pretty close to the Vaporflies or Alphaflies, but we don't know that for sure. I asked Jeff Burns that his guess would be that they would be in the middle tier, not the top tier, based on what he knows about the foam properties and the, and the top. And I want to give you credit. Congratulations, John. At least you're being intellectually consistent. You ignore the, the test results in the Shelby Houlihan case, and you're ignoring the test results in this scientific study. You're, you're ignoring the test results in the Melinda Elmore study, Robert. I'm ignoring the results in the self-reported Melinda Elmore story when she signs a, a contract with Swakini. And maybe, you know, it's not obvious. You're talking about a small thing, one or two seconds a mile. So if the study's not done right or if it's done on a bouncy <laughs> treadmill, maybe you don't pick up on it. Okay, what about if this study was done incorrectly? I'm just saying, you can't just say this study definitively proves it, but then another study presented counter to your findings, and you say that one doesn't count because it doesn't fit my narrative. That's what you're doing, Robert. Okay, a couple points. One, these were independent researchers. They had no financial tie to anyone. So I can see how Robert wants to make a distinction here between this and Melinda Elmore. But also, I think they tested 12 runners, 18 runners. I'm sure these people would say, look, we need more data. This isn't conclusive. It's a great study that they're doing. Um, Robert's like, why would somebody wear the Carbon X? I run on the Carbon X. I like the shoe. Like the Carbon X was never presented as being equivalent to the 4%, Robert. And Tulemic didn't even wear the Carbon X. She wore the Rocket X. I'm not sure if they cut, tested the Carbon X or the Rocket X. By the way, I run on the Carbon X too. I love it. But I'm just saying, if I was a professional marathoner, I certainly wouldn't be racing in it. So which shoe did they test? The, the, they, they tested the Rocket X. They tested the Rocket X. Okay, so Robert got that wrong. But that's no, you just said that's the shoe she wore at the trials. What? You just you just said the Rocket X is the shoe she wore at the trials. Right, but earlier he trashed the Carbon X. I'm like the Carbon X was never presented as being a super shoe. Fine, the shoe Tolomec run at the trials isn't as good as the other shoes. That makes sense. People should f- factor that in, I guess. The other thing that I noticed and. Uh, this is a great thread because one of the authors on the thread is posting on that run. And he also noted another study where they sort of disabled the carbon plate in the shoes and it didn't make a difference. So uh, the take was it's not the carbon plate, it's the foam. And I think the PBAX foam that Nike used, anyone can license that. So I don't know why everyone doesn't just go out and license that. I don't think Nike has an exclusive on that foam. So why doesn't everybody just start using that foam? Can someone help me out there? What am I missing? When I was talking to Jeff Burns this morning, Weldon, he was saying this. We, we were, he basically thinks the same way as you do. He's like, you can tell, but just by on the properties of these shoes, like which one is likely to be the best. He said some of them, you don't know what foam it is. Like ASICS doesn't announce what foam's in there, but it's not that hard to figure out. You need to put this damn foam in there. So, and by the way, shoe designers, if you want to make your own shoe, we can become like this French guy that's coming up later in the podcast. I always think we should have a Let's Run shoe. We'll get the P-Bax foam. We'll dominate the market. I just want to make one shoe. Yeah, Florent sounds like he can make anything. The Let's Run shoe. We'll partner with him. The Let's Run shoe. We'll have P-Bax foam made in America. 
or made in some sweatshop in Asia. Maybe our audience doesn't care. I just want to say for the record, Robert's acting like I'm totally discounting the results of the study. I'm not. I do think this is evidence that there is a difference between these super shoes, which is something we've wondered for quite a while. I Again, credit to Dustin Joubert. And, I'm sorry if you mispronounce your name. And Garrett P. Jones, they were the lead authors on this study. For getting it done, this is something, again, we've been asking for people to do this, an independent study. This is exactly what we needed. I'd like to continue to see some more studies. I'd love to see how the the uh, Adidas shoes line up, but I think this is necessary and important work that was done. And I think this is something World Athletics should be funding. This is an important enough issue in terms of competitive balance that athletes need to know if they're at a disadvantage. If World Athletics threw even like a hundred grand at this, I'm sure the study could be done much better. Or it just seems like the time for that has come. Am I missing something? I agree. I was. I was when I talked to them. I was going to ask like, what was your proposal be going forward? The problem is the shoe companies may be embarrassed to have this coming out there. But it seems to me that this should be a requirement of if you want your shoe to be eligible, you send you know, so many over to the lab and we'll have them tested so that runners have some idea of, you know, how they stack up. So I'm looking at the podcast show notes. Someone put in there that apparently folks, Jordan has is in great shape or decent shape. We don't need to be panicking. Who has this in there? Pete Jordan. I put this in there. Good. I didn't say anything about not panicking, but this is an interesting article from Runner's World, Sarah Lodge Butler. She spoke to Jordan Nassay because she's running the Boston Marathon next month. And we talked about Jordan Nassay a few, about a month ago or earlier this month, actually, when she ran the US 20K champs. And she ran really badly in this race. And I thought some of the quotes from Jordan Nassay were very revealing in this story. She said that race in the US 20K champs when she finished 16th in 114.18, she described it as the most awful race outcome-wise of my life. And we were sort of talking about this race on that on our podcast. We were saying, is she done? You know, she just turned 30 yesterday. What does she have left? And this was the quote that Jordan gave to Sarah. And she, she said, people say this and that on the message boards. You don't think I feel the exact same way? Nothing you say is news to me. I would like to have a great to- race too. It's been a while. And then she went on to say, they have a right to think I'm done. They can't see my training in my life. I need to prove it. That's what motivates me. I want to prove that I can be back and be great again. So I thought this was really revealing that, you know, she admits she knows what, you know, she really, she knows she hasn't been running that well. She knows people have been talking about her not running well and she wants to turn her around. I just, what'd you guys make of this quote? I think it's great. One, she understands there's fans who might criticize her. I think Jordan's always had a good attitude with that sort of stuff. Um, who knows? Maybe she reads the message boards herself. I think that's a very good perspective. I think it's a better perspective to have. Of course she reads the forums. Her dad's a big fan of them. That is correct, Robert. I met her dad. Let me Google here. 2019 New York Mini. And Jordan's like, oh, my dad's a huge fan of the site. And I was like, oh, I'm sure he doesn't like the forums. And she said, quote, oh, no, he he loves them. And I was like, well, how do you deal with the negative stuff? And he said, it comes with the territory. It's not a big deal. There are always going to be cynics. You can't get everything positive. Jordan said, you guys do good stuff for the sport. Thank you. Keep it going, you guys. You guys are 
doing well. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen. All the haters on the forums, maybe that maybe you guys are pushing, inspiring Jordan to greatness. We wanted to come back and gobble gobble all of you at the finish of the Boston Marathon. I'm depressed though. All this talk, not about Jordan's subpar form, but I'm just I'm replaying something in my head that was apparently said earlier in this podcast. Jordan has say turned 30 yesterday. That means I'm old. If she's 30, Jesus Christ, how old am I? Wow. Robert, I was the same, I was the same class in high school as Jordan has say. She's actually very young for our grade. Like most people who graduated my year of high school have already turned 30. I've celebrated 30th birthdays with all my friends. So I also feel old because me and Jordan are the same age. But I guess we're not actually as old as you. So I do feel better about myself in that respect. One other thing I thought was interesting in this piece is they discussed Jordan's coaching situation because she's now being coached by Pete Julian. And it mentioned, you know, she had been with Paula Radcliffe in 2020 and that didn't seem to be working out. Her race in Valencia last year did not go very well. And basically she went swung by practice for a week or two with Pete Julian. She liked having training partners. Pete had a quote in there saying how he thought it was important that she has a hands-on coach, someone who's with her and giving feedback constantly. And essentially like, you know, running these repeats and with Coco and with Jessica Hall, it was kind of, it was good for Jordan to get her butt kicked a little bit. And she went up to altitude and Boulder for a little while. You know, it, it just seemed like she was in a better place mentally the problem, of course, was her race at the US 20K Champs was a total disaster. And Pete Julian couldn't explain that. He didn't know what to expect. But he thought she was going to run a lot better. and She didn't. Jordan, again, she thought it was an awful result. So essentially, Pete told Sarah Lodge Butler he thinks she's in about 225 shape right now. I don't know if that means 225 on a perfect course or 225 in Boston. But he thinks she's decently fit. So I'm going to be very interesting to see, interested to see... If she's that fit, can she take advantage of it and run well in Boston, or is it going to be a disaster a la New Haven? We shall see. And one thing that's interesting, I mean, I know that the people that think everyone's doping will say the farther she gets away from Salazar, the worse her results go. But I would point out that she wasn't running great at the very end of Salazar. Anyways, I've been arguing with someone about the BTC. Someone's like, none of the BTC women have been racing recently. Shows they're all dopers. And I was like, well, their two most prominent members did race a lot and they race very well. So your theory doesn't make any sense that they all got scared and quit the team and stopped racing because they were on drugs. But then Mohamed and Courtney Farrix, what, do they stay on the drugs and race a lot? So I don't know. Some of these logic of these people just doesn't make sense. But just pointing out the time pass in Salazar. Breaking news, breaking marathon news. Hydration packs to be allowed at the New York City Marathon. Hydration packs will be allowed. Fanny packs allowed. New York City Marathon 2021. The COVID protocols are out. You can now carry your water with you at the 2021 New York City Marathon. Yeah, I'm kind of confused by that. Were fanny packs prohibited before? I feel like this is an attack on me and all my fellow Aquariuses out there. We are the water carrier after all. So that, that's outrageous if that wasn't allowed before. Yeah, would they check you like to make sure you didn't bring your own water? Or is that considered like improper assistance? Like you can bring a fanny pack, you know, so you have your keys and your phone, that sort of stuff. But this year you can bring your own hydration. 
You need proof of vaccine or negative COVID test before the race. To pick up your packet, though, inside, you need proof of vaccination. So now, John, we can shame the non-vaxxed because they will have to go to an outdoor location to pick up their packets. So this is how they can be signaled out. So I'm, our sport's kind of weird. Like you could carry a gel in your waist. That was perfectly allowed. But if you carried, if you bothered to carry all the extra weight of all the water on your backpack, that was an illegal assistance. That was not allowed. But if you want to wear a shoe that makes you three to four minutes faster than everybody else, that was perfectly fine, particularly if you painted it to look like everybody else's so, so nobody knew that you had them. Yeah, I was I was worried that we weren't going to get a reference to the 2016 Olympic marathon and Robert asking for the results to be annulled. You know, we had a whole super shoe segment and Robert almost made it. He made it through that whole segment, but had to get in his licks before the end of the pod. I promise you, the next time I interview Shailene Flanagan, I will have the guts to ask her, do you consider yourself, maybe I'll ask it a slightly nicer way, to have had an unfair mechanical advantage when you won your New York City Marathon. Wow. Well, at least we made it through a podcast without a reference to the the intersex skier who ended up living their life as a man and father-child because Robert brings that up pretty much every week and acts as if no one on our podcast has ever heard the story before. He must tell it again and again to let our new listeners know. All right, guys. Another self-congratulatory podcast in the books. But we're not done. We got Florent Bing, the co-founder of Relance, the French shoe company trying to make running shoes in France, is next. And also remember, you got to stay hydrated. DrinkLMNT.com slash Let's Run. Get your free sample pack, $5 shipping. If you don't like it, I will refund your $5. So it's a win-win. It takes like a minute to check out on your phone. Super easy. Do it now. My dad even likes this stuff, apparently. All right, here's the interview with Florent. And if you want to get a pair of the shoes, you can buy them off Quickstarter, 120 euros. Link in the show notes. Talk to you guys next week. I'm joined by, hopefully I get your name right, Florent Bang. <laughs> you get it right. He's the co-founder. We like co-founders. I'm a, I'm a co-founder of Let's Run. He's a co-founder of a new running shoe company, called Relance. It's out of France and they're making running shoes in France, not overseas in Asia. This is pretty cool. Let me show the shoe here. It is super stylish. Actually, I got two, two pairs sent to me, a white pair. Let me, I got to take off the shoe. I'm, I'm wearing the other shoes yet. I've not been running on them. I just got them over the weekend. Mm. Black one. Very pretty. It's cool. You guys are crowdfunding now on Kickstarter. You can buy a pair of shoes for 120 euros. Shipped anywhere worldwide. The Kickstarter, when does it end? It's going to end on October the 7th. Well, we're going to talk about the shoes in a minute, but I think it's just cool what you guys are trying to do. People are trying to make shoes in America. Making shoes in France, I assume, has a lot of the same problems and logistics. But thank you for joining me and talking about the project and the shoes. Also, I want to say he, he's a former professional basketball player in France. I just found this. Played with... Tony Parker, right, as a 14-year-old? Yeah, I played against him, actually, when we were, like, yeah, around 14-something. He was a lot better than I was. I'm sure. I'm sure you're on his level at 14. <laughs> but you're, you're – what's your, your background? What's, 
you're a mechanical engineer. Is that the right term? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're behind the sort of the scientific, the production part of, of the shoes. Your friend and, and partner in this, Violan. Yeah. I think I said that wrong. But it was close. Okay, good. Close enough. So for, I guess, first of all, yeah, talk about how you guys decided to try to start a shoe company. I mean, that's pretty bold. I love bold people who go for their dreams. So how, how did this come about? So actually, I'm more the guy in charge of the technical development, the sourcing and the partnership with the, um, with the suppliers. And Violaine, she graduated from one of the main, one of the best uh, industrial design school in France. So she's the one at the at the origin of the project, you know. And we are both like very hype in we are very into sports and uh, she wanted to create a running shoe brand and the specificity of the project was trying to make everything locally in France. So she starts working on that like a little bit more than two years ago. And when she started making first sketches, 3D rendering, etc., she asked me for help for trying to make this uh, real. So to help her out with the finding the right partners and make a, a, a product which works well. You can tell she's got it. You said she's from the top design school. I mean, the shoe is so pretty. I feel like it's a kind of classic French look. It's got red, white, and blue. People in America can wear it. Wear yeah, yeah, too, yeah. So. It's really patriotic, yeah. <laughs> but it's very, like, stylish is the word. I feel like classic. So you guys are both runners, you were saying, before we got on air. But, like... Yeah, long term, or are you going to have like, I mean, now there's so, you know, each shoe brand has so many shoes, or are you guys just going to focus on a basic training shoe? Or are you going to have racing shoes? Like what's, what's the vision long term, or it's just now make one shoe and perfect that? Since we are at the very, very beginning of the journey, the first goal was to have uh, something nice, something we like, and which be like, uh, okay for uh, the every leisure runners, you know. Um, in the future, maybe we will try to make other products for different kind of usage, like a trail running or long distance. But uh, it will always be uh, running. Uh, I, at this point, we're not thinking about uh, like going into fashion or these kind of areas. I know you said you're not going into fashion, but I, I would wear this shoe walking around town for sure. <laughs> well, it's a good point, yes. Some people uh, made this remark, you know, that it was not... Uh, the look, it was not uh, like a running shoe uh, enough, you know. But we wanted also to design something that we would purchase, something that we would like to wear, so... I used to be a super competitive runner, and now I'm, I run for fun. But I wear my running shoes around a lot, so I want them to look good w when I'm not running. And I feel like your sh these shoes are more—they don't have the traditional running shoe look, but I really like them. Like I live in a beach town; like I, I should have been wearing this shoe all summer 
okay. much less run. That's so good. it's good. And I think where you guys started, like the running shoe industry in the last, I guess, 10 years, you know, it went very minimalist and then it went maximalist. Now there are all these like super foams and plates and all this stuff. And so I feel like this is sort of a basic all around training shoe. I think, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. Like how did you guys decide, like, I don't know what foams to use and what, do you want to talk about some of the technical aspects of the shoe? Yeah, 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 we can, we can. I mean, my English is not going to be like a perfect, but I will try my best to, yeah. So at the, we wanted some, yeah, going back to the basics was one of the main uh, criteria when we started designing the shoe. And afterwards, for the when we were more in the engineering uh, part, we 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 work alongside um, the engineers from the the shoe uh, the shoe company in France. So we decide um, for the for the cushioning um, the. The outsole is in um, expensed uh, PU foam, I think. <laughs> and, uh, do not hesitate to, to uh, correct me if the English is really uh, too uh, too weak. And um, and uh, for still on the cushioning, we have we have developed an insole. You know, I don't know if you can show it on the on the video. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, it's funny because I got the shoes. I, hadn't, I haven't run in them yet, but I'm like, I want to run in them like a couple weeks or something. And you're like, well, we're trying to get the word out on the Kickstarter. And I was like, well, let's just talk about it. It's a cool story. I think a lot of people in Let's Run would order the shoes. But I did Google around and find some reviews. And somebody was saying like, this insole is amazing. And that was the first thing I noticed. They're like, it's almost like a like a, if you bought a custom yeah, insole or something. I feel like it's that type of quality. It's much better quality than you usually see in a shoe. That's something which is uh, pretty innovative, and um, I really like the um, the the feeling you have once you put uh, the your feet into the shoe, and when you start running, you know. Um, so um, yeah, so I, I, I was kind of thinking of the relaunching, uh, but maybe you can say it in English better than I will. Oh yeah, so I was asking about the name, and I was like, "What does the name Relance mean?" And you're like, "Oh, in French, it's it's essentially it's like relaunch. Yeah, it's a play on words, also. So I think that's a good name for a running shoe when you launch off the ground and you want to be light and." So I think that's good. What's the reception been in France? Are people excited to have a shoe made in France? But I think it's a little bit like the, um, the French uh, consumers, a little bit like American consumer, I think. They are more and more looking to buy uh, products and stuff which are made locally, you know, especially after the pandemic when uh, the, the economy is not so great. And um, 
you want to know that uh, the stuff you're buying are creating jobs uh, in your in the country and you you know also when you buy a product made in France or in America that I mean there is nothing to hide within the factory you know you can come with uh, cameras and stuff uh, like everybody has a proper uh, contract the labor conditions are good etc etc so yeah people are, are a bit curious but they like the idea and um, at the beginning um, we, we're still at the very beginning of the journey but the, um, the, the feedbacks we had both from the the mainstream media or the the running, uh, the running uh, media in France has been pretty good, especially since it's the very, very first uh, shoe we launched. And um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say that the hype is uh, amazing, but it's uh, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty happy with the the feedback we're getting. Yeah, it takes time. It takes time. <laughs> 120 euros. I mean, that's. That's probably below, I would say, the average price of a running shoe. I mean, that's under $150. So, yeah, you guys can make a shoe profitably at, at that price. I mean, I think a lot of people would be – one. originally we were told, those oh, shoes have to be made overseas because that's the only way they could be profitable. But you guys seem to think that's not the case. No, I mean, a shoe, a, a running shoe, for example, which would be manufactured in uh, Vietnam – most of them, the like the X factory price would be around like 10 to 15 US. That's the average. And um, those same shoes, you're going to buy them like either way in a, in a store or directly online, as, as you said, around like 150, you know. So it's going to be like 10 to 15 times the markup uh, for the... The, the production cost. So most of the big brand, I'm not saying it's uh, good or bad, but uh, they, they are making like those huge marketing campaigns, etc., etc. And um, us at, the, at this point, we, the, the manufacturing cost in France compared to in Asia is going to be, I don't know, four to five, oh yeah, let's say around four times. But it's still enough, you know, it's still workable, you know. We're not going to make, like, crazy margins like some other would, but, uh, I mean, it's still workable and it's still sufficient to start a growing a business plan around that. Wow. Yeah, so, like, a shoe in France would take cost roughly, like, 60 euros, you're saying, to make? Yeah, let's say, let's say, yeah, around, a little bit over 50 you know, let's say for or, yeah, around 50, around 50. That's definitely more, but I think people, if they trust that the workers are getting paid, they're supporting friends and neighbors, someone in their community, I think people will do it. And if the shoe doesn't cost any more to the consumer, what's the downside, right? Yeah. yeah. You guys may not be sponsoring pro runners, but Olympic runners. <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, he, that's the, um, I don't know if it's a downside, yeah, but uh, yeah, we, no, we're not going to be able to make uh, like huge uh, um, 
huge uh, advertising campaign, but still, you know, if you if you talk about us like on a let's run, uh, maybe it will uh, it will help getting some uh, some fame. Yeah, ho hopefully so. Hopefully so. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing because I Nike makes amazing products, but I first and foremost they're genius marketers. The companies spend billions of dollars in marketing because what they really have is their brand. Um, and you guys are sort of trying a, a different model. And I think a lot of people would, would probably like to see it work because, like, you know, New Balance used to make some shoes in the United States. You you probably know. I think they still make a few here, but it's really tailed off. Yeah, yeah. They're still making some of them, I think, in, in, it's, it's in the main. They, have one, they still have one factory, I think, in the main and um but yeah yeah i think they, they also actually new balance i think they also have one factory in uh, in the uk if i'm correct interesting one in the uk but yeah most of the production uh, a large part of the production now comes straight from asia also i think interesting with, with your with your guys' colors, are you guys going to set up a factory? You can if you go totally global, you'll need like a factory in the U.S. You'll have to fact have a factory in like every major market. My, maybe why not? <laughs> you know, that'll be a good problem to have if you get that big. Maybe that's the that's the that's the ultimate step. Well, thank you for your time. Is there anything else you want people to know about the project or the shoes? Um, but I, I think they can. If they want to have like further information, uh, they can check on our Facebook. You know, we have shared some links from some other website. We have made like some very technical review about the shoes, how it feels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they can have a look at it. Some of them are in French, but also couples are in English. Great. I'll put those links like in the show notes or something. Okay, no problem. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.